Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Moonrise Kingdom. A pair of young lovers flee their New England town, which causes a local search party to fan out to find them. This one might be a little too precious even for me. It is very precious. I don't hate it from a story perspective, but this feels like at moments feels like a caricature of what a Wes Anderson movie is as much as it feels like a Wes Anderson movie. I like it more than some of the other ones, I think, but there were too many plot lines because there are a ton of children and I wish we would have stayed more with the children instead of all the minutia with the, the adults. There's a little too much of the adults backstories involved there. Mm-hmm. than there needs to be. I mean, we can intimate a lot of that. I think it would have been better if we stayed mostly with the scouts and almost like if there was a rival girl scouts camp. <laughs> I think that would have been better because then you could have gotten some of your standard Wes Anderson characters and their actors, but you could have kept more of the focus on the kids because I feel like every time we leave the kid plot the movie suffers i think my problem is that unlike a lot of his other movies the style supersedes the substance here a little bit Mm -hmm. and he clocked in at an hour 39 which is typically not a complaint for me not really a complaint in terms of of storyline here but if you're gonna make things that tight then you have to excise the subplots of the grown-ups sure If you want to make this a two-hour movie and dig into the grown-ups just that little bit extra to help round out those edges, then I would totally understand. Because understanding the problems of the adults, if you get a little more nuance, helps enrich the stories of the kids. But you've got to spend more time with that if you're going to do that. There's nothing there. (laughs) I I don't think there's anything there. The adults we spend the most time with are the least interesting. That's true. And... There's some casting choices that I that I might quibble with. Okay. That that might not be right for for what his style is. I will say too that the grown-up actors are so much more interesting when they are having to deal with these monster children. When they're dealing with the children directly, it's so entertaining. Um, because the the farce of it is so great. And that's what Wes really is great at, is farce. Their their neuroticism creating wholly inappropriate reactions to sure. kid shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you have these children who are way too mature, mm-hmm. which, is, which is what Wes does well. He is over-intelligent children with farcical adults and... Those scenarios. That's what makes fun. That's what made Tannenbaum so amazing. Yeah. Saying that, the core of this movie and the core of the story of those kids was surprisingly touching to me. Like, I thought this was going to be kind of a sillyish romp, and I forget the heart that he puts into these movies. Every time there's a good dose of it. And when it's when he's at his best, he's able to balance them really well. He doesn't quite get the balance right here, but all the stuff about the kids being kind of outcasts and struggling to be able to relate to stuff and dealing with, in a farcical way, some real trauma for both of these kids mm-hmm. <laughs> or some real feelings of neglect at the very least. Dear Susie, you have a superb voice. You are my favorite animal in the program by far. Please find and close. Dear Sam, thank you very much. I got replaced as the Raven because I yelled at Mrs. Lynn. After that, I was only a blue jay, but... Dear Susie, I'm sorry that your brothers are so selfish. Maybe they will grow out of it. Sometimes people do things without knowing the reasons for... Dear Sam, you are an excellent painter, especially trees and telephone poles. Is the girl in the water supposed to be me? My favorite color is... Dear Susie, I accidentally built a fire while I was sleepwalking. I have no memory of this, but my foster parents think I am lying. Unfortunately, it is... Dear Sam, I am in trouble again because I threw a rock through the window. My mother still has glass in her hair. Also, dear Susie, yeah, which I that's just kind of a well he goes to all the time. Yeah, that'll come up in the trivia a little bit. I mean, this is definitely taken from some of his own life experience. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily like to this nth degree intense for him as a child, but he's relating that feeling of being a kid and feeling like 
I'm precocious and definitely a little weird and my family doesn't know what to do with me. <laughs> sure. And I think that's what he's really going after with this movie. And then, you know, he just takes it to this really illogical level. Mm-hmm. Stylistically, I rein it in. Rein it in for once, Wes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the budget for this film was $16 million. Okay. It was reported at one point as $6 million, which is $1 million less than Bottle Rocket. So I'm glad that people found out that was not true because there's no way. It grossed $68,265,000. It did really, really well. Yeah. No, people, people love this film. It is his only live action film not to be rated R. Okay. So that definitely had to play into it. This is, uh, this is one of his more approachable films with younger audiences for sure. Sure. Fantastic Mr. Fox being the most approachable of all of them. <laughs> Probably my favorite. It's really good. <laughs> It's just it's too fun. It premiered in a limited run in just four theaters, like a lot of mm-hmm. smaller indie movies do. It earned $167,250 per screen in those four theaters, which at the time this IMDb note was put in was the highest per theater box office average for a non-animated film. Mm-hmm. It just it, it immediately had people going to see it, which is pretty wild to think about. And it also opened the Cannes Film Festival in 2012. Oh, okay, yeah. So this is a good con premiere for sure. Like Wes being their super artsy boy, but mm-hmm. also being kind of an easier run film. This is a great film to open a film festival with. Well, it's not controversial. No. Everybody's just going to enjoy themselves. Yeah. For the most part. Mm-hmm. We enjoyed ourselves for the most part. I didn't hate my time watching this movie. Fine. <laughs> Let's talk about our writers, plural, because as we've said, Wes likes to collaborate mm-hmm. on his films. So, one of our writers is Wes Anderson. We've mm-hmm. already talked about his stuff. His co writer for this film is Roman Coppola. <gasps> yeah. Before this, he wrote The Spirit of 76 CQ and then started collaborating on The Darjeeling Limited. After this, He wrote A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, Isle of Dogs, Mozart in the Jungle, which he helped co-create, and The French Dispatch, which is upcoming. What do we think of the writing of this movie? We got into it a little bit. I like the story, but I wish I had been more focused on the kids. Yeah. Because one of the things Wes does really well, just like Paul Thomas, is that he creates really good characters. He does. Oh, always. But where he fails is that he... Makes this great character, and then he just leaves them out to dry. He doesn't give <laughs> us anything about them. He gives us just enough to get interested, and then they're gone. Where this is done really well is with social services in this film. Yes. We're given so little, but so much. It's a very well-threaded thing, and that's done. That's perfect. But, you know, like, we're given all this stuff about mom and dad, And then we just have to be around them. And then she has these three brothers and it's like, they all have these very compelling personalities, but we don't get anything. Nothing comes of it. No. He spent so much time on the aesthetics Mm -hmm. and really building an environment in this island, which is awesome. The world building of this movie is so amazing. I don't really think it's that amazing. It's interesting. And what, he does with the Bob Balaban character is fabulous. Oh, it's wonderful. But that's where we get just enough that we're like, this is fun and interesting, but it doesn't take away from like where the real story is. The stuff with the parents, with the chief of police, it was just messy. And I like all those actors. I like what the information we got, but it's like, this is not their story. And they're just, they're wasting my time. The adult that I would have loved so much more of is the Scoutmaster. Yeah. Because he clearly is conflicted and he's not very good at his job, but he's really passionate about his job. And we needed more of that. And we also needed more of those kids in that troop because they each have a very distinct personality, especially because how they're named. Your socks are down, your shirt tails are untucked, your trousers are not properly pressed. You are reported for a uniform violation. How many rockets do you have to finagle? 16 and a half, sir. Is that enough for the hullabaloo? Izod, go fetch another pint of gunpowder from your armory shed. 
Renford, hold. I saw that. How fast were you just going? Safe to death, sir. Come again? The vehicle appears to be in good working order. I'm just checking if. Uh... Reckless cycling. Second warning. Next time I take away the keys. And that's great, especially when you have just a bunch of kids who you don't know who they are. I mean, I I would like them to be less derogatory names, but they each have a very distinct identity. I would have liked to learn more about them and and what that ecosystem is before we just we get out of it. He has a tendency to set up characters as devices, Mm -hmm. which for the most part works for him. Like you said, Mm -hmm. social services. The narrator, Perfect. Jason Schwartzman's character is Cousin Ben. That type of stuff really works. Which I like that he's Cousin Ben because he's Roman's cousin. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. If you didn't know this, Jason Schwartzman is the son of Talia Shire, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast. We have. He is the sister of Francis Ford Coppola. So Big Daddy Francis is Jason's uncle. So Roman is his cousin. Yeah. Uh, all of that works really well. I think where it really is a problem and and where we both come down on is they didn't make the right choice one way or another about the parents, because either you've got to make the parents a significant plot in this story Mm -hmm. and have that be a huge impact, which he leaned towards, I feel like, because their relationship and that strain is a big issue for Susie. It's a big part of the mess. Well, her mom clearly having this affair of some degree with the police chief is part of what makes her go this is all bullshit that is the inciting incident for her to want to leave yeah which is fine but i don't care who the chief of police is what should have happened with him is we realize like this boy's gone missing oh there's been some trouble he comes to the house she catches them and then we never see the police chief again until the end He should have been a non-factor because, again, we waste so much time with him and I don't care. I really don't care. (laughs) And like, yeah, it's just it's really messy. It's really messy, except for the stuff with the kids and the scouts. That stuff is so tight and so fun. It's ridiculously fun and good. Yeah, it just it didn't it didn't deliver there. I don't know. Well, maybe part of the problem is that this is West's first ever film not to involve Owen Wilson in some capacity. (laughs) Now, granted, after the experience of Darjeeling, I can imagine Owen probably wanted to take a break and do some other stuff. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that he had such huge, amazing success and Owen was partnering with him during all of that. I don't think Owen being a part of this is what would have changed it. Uh, uh, unless Owen's casting significantly changes the story, like if Owen being, because we know he co-wrote Bottle Rocket, if him being involved in the project means that he has say and influence over the story, then sure. But I don't know that that's true. I would be curious because, I mean, he co-wrote, he co-wrote Rushmore, he co-wrote Royal Tenenbaums, and he co-wrote Steve Zissou. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I would be really curious to know how that writing relationship works. That's something that's fascinating to me is what does Owen offer in, in that writer's room? What does he bring to the table? And what what was the change Sure, working with Roman instead? Sure. It's very possible that, you know, as we look through the rest of these movies and he started to work with Roman more, that we're like, oh, well, this was the first time they collaborated. So they kind of got a little messy and mm-hmm. then they fixed it. For the sure. stuff they've done it's one of those things where you don't think it has an impact but it might have had an impact here did roman co-write isle of dogs yes he worked on isle of dogs as well okay, that movie's garbage it is it's a terrible film it's a horrible film for a thousand and one reasons except the dogs i really did like the dogs the dogs and the dogs personality here again he's really good at setting up characters the so dogs good. and their personalities and the voice actors they chose for the dogs fabulous Everything else is trash. It was not good. But we don't speak of that because he's got so many other good movies. There. Wes was influenced by the 1971 film Melody. Uh, He's in fact stated that this is basically his remake of that film. Mm -hmm. It's a film in which two children express to their parents their strong desire to be married to each other. And the film is told from the children's perspective. Okay. So this is very much his sort of aesthetic take on that story. But a lot of the details were inspired by both Wes and Roman's childhood. 
and specifically their experiences of falling in love. Some of those include that Laura Bishop yelling through a bullhorn in the house is something that Roman's mother, Eleanor Coppola, used to do in his home. Okay. It's one of the best bits in the whole movie. (laughs) Susie, dinner. I'm not going to say it again. Where is your sister? I don't know, but she bought my record player for 10 days without asking. What does that mean? Dear Lionel, I need to use your record player. I will give it back in 10 days or less. Do not tell Mom or Dad. I will replace the batteries when I return. Signed, Susie Bishop. Walt, where the hell are you? Right here. Why are you cursing it? Does it concern you that your daughter has just run away from home? That's a loaded question. Come down and read this. I remember hearing something about that, which just rang so true for the Coppolas. Like, they're wacky. They're wacky. Like, they're just like any weird family. They just happen to be filmmakers and famous. They're so weird. They're they're very weird. We've talked about Francis a lot. The, the shit that went down on Apocalypse Now. <laughs> dear Lord. Like, dear Lord. Because Roman, is, yeah, Roman is Francis's kid. Yeah. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> hard to keep them there there are so many people related to the coppolas at this point it's <laughs> fucking insane it's just yeah, and, fucking insane and two of them are s- somewhat well acclaimed filmmakers one of them is very highly acclaimed roman is okay roman is very like he's just very behind the scenes dude he's a really great music video director for sure sophie is the one who's been out in front for so long because she's that good she makes exquisite films. <laughs> she does. And then you've got Jason, who's the actor, who does very niche things. But what he does, he does very well. So well. Which I think is also really cool that I feel like none of them are trying to be Francis. They're just like, this is our thing. We're going to do our thing. Yeah. And that's cool. And they do their thing fairly well. Yeah. But I do love that because it's just like, this tracks. And again, that's one of those quirky personality details that makes her endearing. And also insane. It's perfect. It's it reminds me of Betty with the shotgun and, and Mad Men. Like <laughs> yeah. this is that like when you tell someone this this detail about your your parent, they just look at you like, "Are you kidding me?" And you're just like, "No, this is 100 what happened." You're like, wow. <laughs> but in the best way, it's the most entertaining thing. Yep. Wes's childhood classmates were all scouts in Troop 55. Oh, cute. Yeah. And Susie's discovery of the Coping with a Troubled Child pamphlet is based on a pretty similar experience to Wes Anderson. Okay. His quote about it, he was not as uh, traumatized by it. So he mm-hmm. more explored that through the character than in his real life. Quote, it wasn't anything terrible. It's just something at the time when I found it, I was like, what is this? I immediately knew who that troubled child was, even though hypothetically it could have been someone else, unquote. Mm. <laughs> it's just him going, Oh, oh, well, yeah, they're not wrong. <laughs> Wes seems like the kind of precocious weirdo that would cause parents to investigate resources. Mm-hmm. And as to his experiences falling in love and his thoughts on the movie, quote, well, what I wanted to do is recreate the feeling of that memory. This movie is kind of like a fantasy that I think I would have had at that age. When you're 11 or 12 years old, you can get so swept up in a book that you start to believe that the fantasy is reality. I think when you have a giant crush when you're in the fifth grade, it becomes your whole world. It's like being underwater. Everything is different, unquote. And I think he's absolutely right. But the problem is when we have those scenes with the adults, we're breaking out of that fantasy. Mm-hmm. When the parents and the grownups are with the adults, that whole fantasy still feels like it's swirling around. Yeah. But when it's just the grownups, all of it becomes crushingly real and it breaks the tone of the movie. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah. And I, and I think if he had found that consistent tone the whole way through, this wouldn't feel that way. I will give an exception when the Scoutmaster, played by Edward Norton, shows up. He's bought into it. Oh, yeah. So that quality remains intact for the kids, even when he's there. Yeah, absolutely. In a, in a good way. And so that's where I like he really needed to be the main adult in the film. He really did. It needed to be him with tiny pop appearances from the other people. And then that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I am. I am right. <laughs> well, let's let's get into what I think is actually really great about this movie. That's the directing from Mr. Wes Anderson. 
setting aside our issues with the story and the script, what do we think of the directing of this film? I mean, you say the directing is really where it's at, and I don't know that that's true with a Wes Anderson film. It all has to come together or it doesn't come together. Hmm. Interesting. Because I think if you take away any element, some it's going to fall apart. His aesthetic is so strong. If you take that away, a lot of the charm of the story is gone. If you take away this cast, he has a very strong cast. His casting is very key. It's very important. Yeah. You take away that cast, this all falls apart. The story, which has its issue, we have issues with it, but it still is very much a West story. You take that away, this film doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I think I don't, I don't think I can talk solely about his directing with this because at this point, this wasn't really the case in Bottle Rocket, but definitely at this point. All of those things have to be working together or this film doesn't get made. This film isn't finished. Huh. Maybe for me, it was that I noticed the directing and the choices a lot more in this movie than I have with some of his others. Okay. When I sit down and watch The Royal Tenenbaums or when I watch The Darjeeling Limited, I never get caught up in the choices that he's making in those movies or even Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's like I'm in a world and I feel like I'm in that world. And in this movie in particular, I felt a lot of the choices he was making as a director visually. There was so much more visually going on in this movie than I've seen in some of his other stuff. Mm-hmm. With the way that he constructed the sets, with the way that he like moved throughout the house. And I know that he's always done sort of moving throughout compartments and stuff. He, he really started that with Steve Zissou, like you're in a dollhouse and you're moving around parts of the dollhouse. but. I don't know. For some reason, I was I was like strongly noticing it watching this movie. And that's why I felt like it was even stronger than usual. And then there were moments like the absolute perfection of Bob Balaban talking about the storm, turning the light off. And right as he walks away from the camera is when the boat is coming on the shore. Mm -hmm. Like the precision of this movie, of the timing and the way the action occurred. Yeah. Again, you're right that the scenes that are messy in writing are also messy in filmmaking because they don't fit in the whole. Sure. But like all of the action going on feels so precisely laid out and filmed that it just something about it felt even stronger than what I've usually noticed from his films. I don't know. It just felt like he was like super, super sharp as a director with this movie. Hmm. But it also could be to the detriment of the movie. See, and that's where I think it's just really hard to parse it out yeah. between the directing and the writing and his aesthetic because I don't think he has a movie if he doesn't have his aesthetic and his cast. Well, no, that's very true because the cast has to be on point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have to, I'll have to think about that a little bit more. Well, before we get to that cast, the movie was filmed in Prudence Island, Rhode Island, although the map of New Penzance, the island that they're on, is based on Fisher's Island, New York. They used an abandoned linens and things near Newport as a soundstage for the film. Mm-hmm. And the final scout scenes were all filmed at the Yagoog Scout Reservation in Rockville, Rhode Island. It's a hundred-year-old scout camp that was never used in any film except for this one. Okay. Beautiful place. Sure. The dance scene between the two leads was kept until the very end of filming. This is when they are stripped down after they've gone swimming and are dancing together. Mm -hmm. This was both to be safe. The set was completely closed. It was just the actors, Anderson and the cameraman, which Mm -hmm. absolutely it needs to be to be safe. But it was also to ensure that the actors had the entire filming to have enough chemistry working together to feel safe doing it. To be comfortable, yeah. Which I was like, that also seems like a really great idea that they waited until they'd had the rest of that time to do the rest of the film together. (laughs) That's appropriate, given the fact that they're young actors who have not done this before. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, like, with seasoned actors and adults, like, day one, y'all could be doing your sex scene. Like, just make it work. And that's just the way it is. And, you know, I've I've read some things with some actors. Like, it's kind of nice because then you just rip the Band-Aid off and then you get the most awkward thing done because there's nothing sexy about filming a sex scene. 
like everybody thinks, oh, it's so hot. No, you've got like 30 people watching you. Someone's eating a sandwich. There's like complicated rigging. Like it's just, it's not, it's not hot at all. So like, I get that. But I, I, you know, when you're dealing with young adults or children, really, because they're definitely underage, you have to handle with so much more care. (laughs) Yeah. I looked at, I looked at their ages. They were both about 14 when this movie was made. They're playing 12. Sure. Um, it's fine. And I think it part of that, too, was that you're watching it bracing because you know that scene's coming and you're like, oh, is this this could go real bad. And he played it really sweet and awkward in a Wes Anderson way. I don't completely agree with that. OK, that's fair. I don't know. I think well, we'll talk about it when we get to the act. The I don't know. Cast. I think he tried. I don't know how successful he was. I mean, Wes's default is awkward. Yes. Oh, for Um, sure. I think it might have been a a hair too awkward. Yeah, that's possible. I I, Yeah, I think that may have been the case. Mm. Well, during filming, Anderson rented a mansion in Newport, Rhode Island, where he, the director of photography, Robert D. Yeoman, and his editor, Andrew Weisblum, stayed in a room dedicated to editing. So they just had an easy place to go near where they were filming to edit while they were working. Okay. The cast had been arranged to stay in a nearby hotel called the Vanderbilt Grace. But some of the cast, including Edward Norton and Jason Schwartzman, decided they'd just go stay at the mansion instead. Bill Murray later joked that Wes had to have planned it that way so everyone could be closed off and work, quote, ungodly art movie hours, unquote. That sounds like Wes and Bill. Yep. (laughs) Those things sound accurate. It's very true. Pointing out some of the details, which I thought were fascinating. When Susie is reading the book Disappearance of the Sixth Grade and turns the page to where we see it says part two, it is almost exactly at the halfway point of the film. Okay. And it marks a huge transition in the film for the characters. Okay. So it's like exactly halfway a transition point, which is just like, that's not an accident. That's really well crafted. Mm-hmm. Also, the Bishop home has paintings of almost all of the locations in the film throughout the house. That includes a picture of their house, which we see at the very beginning, but also Camp Ivanhoe, the new Penzance post office, and Fort Lebanon. He's got stuff like that peppered throughout this film. And again, it's not that he doesn't have that in others, but I really felt it this time (laughs) a lot more than I usually do. And despite all of the fake books that Susie reads, the play Noise Flood is an actual 1957 opera that Benjamin Britten wrote. It is based off an early 15th century mystery play. It's a medieval story mm-hmm. and was written to be performed by amateurs in a church or a large hall, not a theater. So thus, the children and the town are performing it in the church. So let's get on to what is always a huge highlight of Wes Anderson films. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be our cast. And we start with a debate over Bruce Willis as Captain Sharp. Now, we are not going to go through Bruce Willis's credits because he's Bruce Willis. And we mentioned him in both The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable in our Shyamalan-tober series. Oh, yeah. That was last year. Yeah. That's a good series. What do we think of Bruce Willis doing Wes Anderson? Unexpected. It's nice to get to see him be understated again, like he was in The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. Which we really liked him doing. Yeah, he's very good at it when he gets the opportunity. Sure, because he's just been, you know, John McClane. John McClane. He's John McClane. <laughs> neither Moonlighting Guy or John McClane. Yeah. And so he doesn't get to do this type of thing very often. So I, I really did like what he gave us, but I don't like his character. We had too much of his character. And that has nothing to do with with Bruce. Again, I like Bruce in this position because it's a different role for him. But yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's all I got for Bruce. You know, the more that I think about it, the more I wish that with the affair, I, I feel like just a little bit of tweaking would make it okay because where I really did like Captain Sharp is how he interacts with Sam. Captain Sharp and Sam together sure. were really good. That sure. scene just with them at his trailer is fantastic. What I wish is that instead of making the affair this kind of half-assed thread that he put in the whole movie, if it had just been the one time and then done, 
and then he meets this other kid and you know he's got this affair and he's kind of a mess and he's not the greatest police guy but also there's not a lot to do on this island and now he has a real specific reason to like buck up and be better uh-huh. that to me would play if we just see it the one time and then it's over and it never happens again mm-hmm. and it's all about just the bishops dealing with their marital stuff yeah if we had kept that separate a lot of this wouldn't feel so weird if these two weren't going to wind up together and you spent all this time kind of stringing us along, why did we do it in the first place? Instead of just making it a small towns are weird and people make mistakes sometimes and then move on with their lives. <laughs> I don't know. But it's a, it's a badly written character. And uh, it, it is. It's a waste of a good Bruce Willis performance. That's where it's really at. I think so. Well, let's get to somebody we really did love and somebody who I am looking now we have never discussed in a full episode of this show. Wow. Yeah. It's Edward Norton playing Scoutmaster Ward. That doesn't really surprise me because he hasn't done a ton. And what he has been doing, we have not been interested in. Or we saw like opening. We're, we're like, we have to see this because it's Edward Norton and he's amazing. I love him. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. Before this, he did Primal Fear, Everyone Says I Love You, The People vs. Larry Flint, American History X, Rounders, Fight Club, Keeping the Faith, The Score, Death the Smoochie, Frida, Red Dragon, 25th Hour, The Italian Job from 2003, Kingdom of Heaven, The Illusionist, The Incredible Hulk, and Leaves of Grass. After this, The Bourne Legacy, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, Sausage Party, Isle of Dogs, Motherless Brooklyn, and he will be in the French Dispatch. And Knives Out 2. That's right, Knives Out 2. <gasps> Which I love uh, Ryan Johnson being like, I need to like come up with an actual name so people will stop calling it Knives Out 2. <laughs> well, we're going to call it Knives Out 2. It's going to be Knives Out 2. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be like a Benoit Blanc mystery. I'm for it. I'm so like, there are going to be so many attractive people in that movie. We love Edward Norton. And he gets to be so appropriately awkward and bad in this movie (laughs) yeah he loves scouts so much but he's so bad at being a scout leader the moment that tells you everything is like well what's your your profession any questions lazy eye what's your real job sir i'm a math teacher why what grade eighth you need phd for that lazy eye no but you know what we're actually in the middle of something here in case you didn't notice one of our scouts is missing and that's a crisis Anybody else? Redford. What if he resists? Who? Shikusky. Are we allowed to use force on him? No, you're not. This is a non-violent rescue operation. Your mission is to find him, not to hurt him under any circumstances. Am I making myself understood? Yes. Good. I'm going to change my answer, in fact. This is my real job. Scoutmaster, Troop 55. A math teacher on the side. <laughs> and I was like, that's who this guy is. Like... That made me want to know so much more about him. Because before it's like, okay, he's kind of like a fuddy-duddy as a leader. and He's not very good at this. He certainly can't keep these kids in check. He keeps having them eat breakfast in the Last Supper formation, which is great. I love it. I mean, to be fair, these kids are ridiculous. They're rough. They're, they're <laughs> little jerks. But Troop 55 plays by their own rules. <laughs> of course they do. But that moment there gave me like, okay, I need to know more about this man. (laughs) I need his entire story. I want us to be with him more. And Edward Norton is just really good at being really understated and still being captivating. He's also really good at being overwhelmed. Yeah. It's something he's, especially in comedies, he is so good at being the guy who is way too in over his head. He has so many levels. that I, I had forgotten he was in Birdman. And I remember in Birdman, he plays Manic so much in that film but it's still in this way that isn't overwhelming and doesn't take away from what's happening but it's still you're right there with with him and it's so like it and it again he he's able to thread that needle so good and again you know you can't forget fight club yeah is just a masterpiece of watching him edward norton has the magical actor ability and, and I don't know that this is theater because I think he's primarily a film and TV guy. He has this magical screen presence of no matter what kind of role you give him, mm-hmm. wacky or deeply real, he is able to ground it. 
no matter what you throw at him, he finds a way to tether it to something real sure. that makes everybody buy in. And especially when that's on film, mm-hmm. that's even harder to do in some ways. You just have to have something in like specific X factor that allows you to do that. And mm-hmm. he just has that. It just makes you love this character so much because you're like, oh, man, you're trying so hard, dude. He just wants to find this lost kid and take care of his troop. That's all he wants. Mm-hmm. He wants to be a good scout master. Well, then let's talk about somebody whose performance I actually really, really enjoyed mm-hmm. doing a, a little variation on what he does. It was Bill Murray as Mr. Bishop. Mm-hmm. He's Bill freaking Murray. We talked about him with Scrooged on this show, but he's, of course, one of Wes's go-to characters, whether he be a lead or not. He just can't do a, a project without Bill popping in to say hi. At least in some form or fashion. Yeah. I kind of love him in this movie. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's something about what Bill tapped into here about being just completely bewildered. No, that's not. It's his hair. The hair is doing a lot. It's the hair that's doing a lot for him because he's not doing anything different. Or I don't see him doing anything different. His hair is just sticking out from his head the entire time, which is not something that happens very often. That hair's doing a lot of work for Bill. There's something about this character that is a little bit different than what he's played before. He is supposed to be a completely grounded character on paper. Like all of his other characters have been very grounded but on paper are really fucking wild in Wes Anderson movies. And in this, it's the opposite where he is supposed to be a staid lawyer who like knows the law and is able to keep control. And then at every fucking moment, he just loses control. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's a twist on what he normally does in these movies. It just, it is. I think it just threw me in the right way of being like, Oh, I forgot Bill gets to do this, especially when it comes to Wes. Sure. Because he is just off the rails the whole movie. Yeah, he's a bit nuts. Him yelling at the kids is ridiculous. Well, let's talk about his counterpart in this movie. Somebody who has been a frequent character, but has only ever shown up as an Arpon on this show. That's Frances McDormand as Mrs. Bishop. Wow. Okay, that makes sense. I know. Because we've we've seen all her movies recently. Yeah, she's been frequent because she's had tons and tons of high-profile projects in recent Oscar years. Yeah, which, I mean, she's a fabulous actress, but I've talked about her Oscar wins ad nauseum. <laughs> and I don't think she, or I think the last two were undeserving. That's fair. That's fair. We've talked about her as an Arpon in Raising Arizona, and that's it. Yeah. That's our very first episode. I know. Y'all, that was four fucking years ago. (laughs) That was 2017. That's ridiculous. That was our very first podcast. Uh, Not ever, because we did ponies first, but then we did that. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. I almost want to listen to that, but then I'm like, no. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to go through her credits because it's Francis and we've talked about her so much in recent years. I will say that she is going to be in the French Dispatch. Everybody keeps showing yep. up. What do we think of Francis McDormand in this movie? The bullhorn helps a lot. The bullhorn is great. I don't think she's anything special in this movie and that's not me shitting on her at all. She's a very talented woman. She's a very talented actress. She has a very specific lane to play in in this role. And so she just kind of does it and gets out of the way. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah. I mean, she's just concerned mom with a bullhorn. And if she, <laughs> honestly, honestly, she didn't have the bullhorn, she'd be wallpaper. A little bit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The only good stuff is she tempers Bill Murray's character. All right, kids out. Next up, Tilda Swinton as social services. We have talked about her before on Orlando. Mm-hmm. And again, also been in many recent high-profile films. What do we think of Tilda Swinton in this movie? I love her. She was one of my favorite things because she doesn't get a name. Her name is Social Services. Uh huh. So her whole position in the film, her design is fabulous. She's great, and it's Tilda. Tilda can't do anything bad. I love the fact that she gets to bring a little bit of Tilda Swinton flavor, mm-hmm. but just a hint of it. 
because of where this character sits like in in the big story of the film but i also love that she starts off very reasonable she's like i'm just doing my job and then by the end of that first conversation it's like oh hmm uh oh might not be good news for social services here yeah but she also always does seem to have the desire to do what's best for the kids even though what she thinks is best for the kids is you know send them to a horrible orphan camp <laughs> yeah you're captain sharp that's correct i'm social services i remanded the boy into your personal custody you're responsible for his safety i'm told that he's just been struck by lightning it's the first i've heard of it it's true scoutmaster ward i presume yes ma'am your reputation precedes you you two are the most appallingly incompetent custodial guardian social services has ever had the misfortune to encounter in a 27 year career what do you have to say for yourselves you can't do this they'll eat him alive in there where what's the name of the place again juvenile refuge juvenile refuge sounds like jail just find the boy and deliver him to social services nothing else is in your power the way she reacts to being like a parent let's get him a parent yeah it's very much that way um but i love her she's just she's very much playing her like theater training in this movie in a lot of ways being very presentational Mm -hmm. which works it works so well she's lovely who could have been better offered the role alan rickman (gasps) and jeremy irons okay alan rickman i will choose him any day for anything (laughs) no where did you say the boy was also that would have put him squarely next to john mcclain it would have have. i would have never been mad that's probably why Wes thought of it. It, pro- it, it didn't hurt. It no. It didn't hurt. I love you, Tilda, but I would have loved to see Alan Rickman do that. That would have been the perfect, perfect stunt casting. And Wes would have made it work really well. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about our two youngest actors making their film debut. We start with Jared Gilman playing Sam. After this film, he was in Elsa and Fred, Two-Bit Waltz, and Patterson, and he's done a smattering of things, but he's still acting. What do we think of Jared Gilman in this film? He is the exact right amount of awkward and also really cute without being hot. (laughs) Yeah. He reminded me so much of Matthew Weiner's son playing Glenn in Mad Men. Mmm, that's very true. There's so much. You're a child, but also I know so much. Like this kid has been through so much shit. Like, don't fucking talk down to me as a child. With like, they still have like all that hope, and that's what he does so well. And they had like his. There's so many scenes where you could tell his glasses were just slightly askew, in the most <laughs> perfect way. Where it's just like, mm-hmm, yep, he's a little off. Not in a bad way, but he is just not. And the, uh, yeah, that's what gave gave me a Glenn vibes from Mad Men because it was just like it's the same quality. Yeah, and and he has he has the precociousness of Schwartzman's character from sure. Rushmore. Yes, but it is much more tempered by not having that teenage jaded nature. He's he's got all that kid hope just stuffed inside of him, and it will never go away. He's. <laughs> He's just an eternal optimist in a, in a really fun and heartwarming way. Mm-hmm. During filming, Bill Murray taught him how to tie a necktie for the first time. Aww. Which makes adorable sense. And apparently, his toughest scene in the whole film was holding up the beetle earrings for Susie. Every time he brought them up to camera, they either weren't in frame or he did not hold them correctly. So they had to keep doing it over Aww. and over again. That's funny. Then we have Kara Hayward playing Susie. Mm-hmm. After this, she was in Manchester by the Sea, Patterson, Isle of Dogs, To the Stars, Us, and The Social Dilemma. Okay. And she keeps doing more and more stuff as well. Okay. What do we think of Kara Hayward in this movie? She's good. Mm-hmm. She does the intensity really well. But after that, I don't get any sense I don't get innocence from her like with Sam we get like the childlike optimism and determination and we don't get that from her for her it's just like a resolve so she's it's almost like she's playing this as a like a downtrodden housewife already yeah 
that's kind of how it feels. And I, I don't know if that's just the writing or if that's the direction, but that's how she's playing a lot of things. And I know part of the whole thing with both Anderson films is that they're not overly exuberant about anything, but there was never that type of quality in her. And I see it in Sam, but we don't see it in her. It's really the character, I think, more than anything else. I don't want to shit on the, that the first time actor, but that's what I noticed with her performance. He made that coping with the troubled child pamphlet such a huge deal for that character. And she, as an actor, locked into that as a huge part of the motivating factor, which makes a lot of sense. Sure. But it feels like that with that framing. Mm-hmm. As an actor, she then locked into that and didn't find those optimistic edges. I totally love the idea of her being sort of the pessimistic counterbalance, but we never get that twinkle of joy from her. When she's with him. And that's and I think that's really a mix of all of that, uh-huh. of him framing the character that way, sure. and then she is an actor really absorbing that and maybe missing some of the nuance. I think if we had had the joy when it was just the two of them and then she's really spicy with everybody the rest Mm -hmm. of the time that would have played really well with the exception being when she confronts her mom and her mom admits that she's been having an affair i would have liked to have seen her melt a little there to her mom because like oh you're not trying to bullshit me anymore being honest with me okay So you're going to be honest with me, then I'll be a little more vulnerable with you. Not like totally, but a little bit. That's where we needed to see. I didn't see a range with her in this movie. Fun note for her. She applied all of her own makeup for the role. You can tell. (laughs) Not in a bad way. Like No, it's just like. I love that. On to our last two. We have Jason Schwartzman playing Cousin Ben. He is a Wes Anderson legend. Staple. Staple often a lead actor in his film. So this is an interesting like bit character role in some ways for him. Yeah. Like it, this is a smaller role than what he usually does because, well, he wasn't in Tannenbaum. No, he was not in Tannenbaum. But, but he was the lead in Rushmore and that's what broke both of them really. He's so fucking pitch perfect. He's so good. And his look is just amazing. And like, again, He had that quality that I was hoping to see more of with Scoutmaster Ward because he's like, this is ridiculous. I'm on board. Let's go. (laughs) I liked that. And I liked that we had an adult who was just like, y'all are going to do what you're going to do. So like, okay, let's go. Yeah, he's the antithesis of Scoutmaster Ward. He is the scout guy who's like, this real stupid. Fuck it. We're breaking everything. Yeah. You two need to be married. Mm, Well, I can't actually officially marry you, but we can make it, you know, a ceremony. Uh, His whole speech about marriage is one of the funniest fucking things. He's sitting there talking to two 12-year-olds and just like, I can't offer you a legally binding union. It won't hold up in the state, the county, or frankly any courtroom in the world due to your age, lack of a license, and failure to get parental consent. But the ritual does carry a very important moral weight within yourselves. You can't enter into this lightly. Look into my eyes. Do you love each other? Yes, we do. But but think about what I'm saying. Are you sure you're ready for this? Yes, we are. They're not listening to me. Let me rephrase it. We're in a hurry. Are you chewing? Spit out the gum, sister. In fact, everybody. I don't like the snappy attitude. This is the most important decision you've made in your lives. Go over by that trampoline and talk it through before you give me another quick answer. (laughs) Uh, And finally, we have to mention, as the narrator and a cartographer... Bob Balaban, we talked about him with Lady in the Water, and if you'll recall, he was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a cartographer. Cartographer. (laughs) I love Bob Balaban. That is also definitely not a mistake. No. I love that he's wearing the Steve's (laughs) Life Aquatic outfit. A little bit, yeah. It's like a nod to it, which I'm totally fine with. He's just so perfect because usually we get those, those slides in his film so instead of slides this time we we got a couple of maps but we got him instead so we got the maps with his narration over it or we got him speaking directly to the camera which i loved it was so fun and yes that you mentioned it before where he turns out that light and then the boat shows up is so great the timing of all of his sequences works so perfectly 
I just and I just realized now when he interrupts everybody, that's also taken directly from Close Encounters when he has to interrupt all the guys in the investigating the alien stuff and telling them where stuff is. He interrupts all the adults in this one. They really did play with that. See, and that that just makes me wish Alan Rickman had been here so that they could have gone toe to toe. Bob Balaban's just so good. And this is just a perfect use of his his just whole dry demeanor as an actor. Yeah, he's just so fun. I love Bob Balaban. And that is it for our main cast. And we are going to move to a few, not too many, Arpons. I got to say, all of the scouts were really amazing, but there's only a few who have done some really, like, bigger things. Sure. One of them being Lucas Hedges, whose name in this movie... It's so perfect. He is Redford. He's the redheaded kid. He also looks a whole hell of a lot like Robert Redford with the hair. I don't think so. Um, but it, Yeah, it's because he has red hair. <laughs> of course, he is becoming one of our best young actors. Three billboards, Lady Bird. He was in Honey Boy. He's doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. He's rad. And he's real fun in this movie as our little evil fucker. He's very cute. We have Seamus Davy Fitzpatrick playing Roosevelt. He played Damien in the Omen remake in 2006. Oh, okay, cool. Larry Pine playing Mr. Billingsley. He's a longtime character actor you might know best as Bob Birch, the main Republican nemesis in House of Cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have Eric Chase Anderson, Wes's brother, playing Secretary McIntyre at the scout camp. You can totally tell he's an Anderson because he's got almost the exact same face as Wes. He has been in a lot of Wes's movies, but most notably, he was cousin Christofferson in Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's like identifying a Wilson bro. Oh, yeah. It's the same. But yeah, he was Christofferson. Love that movie. We have Jake Ryan playing Lionel, one of the scouts. He played Buckley Voorhees on Kimmy Schmidt. Carolyn Pickman playing Mrs. Lynn. She is the head of casting for this movie. Oh, okay. And also worked on Spotlight and The Departed. And finally, Harvey Keitel playing Commander Pierce. He's so ridiculous. We talked about him a lot in The Piano and Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver, yeah. Just why not throw Harvey Keitel in for a little little five-minute cameo? And see, that was a piece of stunt casting that was perfectly well done. So good. Because he shows up, he's a big deal, and he leaps. The end. And you Perfect. see some pictures of him early in the movie. Yeah, he's great. Like, uh, I liked, I like him in that role. And then let's move on to trivia. Not a lot of trivia, just a little. After filming, Kara Hayward got to keep Susie's kitten as a pet, and Jared Gilman got to keep Sam's backpack. Aww, I know. The film ends with For Juman, written in script in the corner. Yeah. That is a reference to Anderson's girlfriend, Juman Malouf, who has done illustration and artwork for several of his films. Juman is also from Lebanon, hence the name of the scout fort, Fort Lebanon. On the map, there is a location called Yeoman Lane, named after our cinematographer, Robert D. Yeoman. Mm. And of course, the place we see at the end, Moonrise Kingdom, is the Mile Inlet 3.25 whatever number they have. They decide they hate that name, so they change it to Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Before filming, neither Kara Hayward nor Jared Gilman had ever seen an actual typewriter. Frances McDormand thought this was mind-blowing and hilarious, and she spent a good chunk of some time showing them how it worked and how the keys matched that of a computer, which is very cute. It sounded like they had a whole lot of fun just like having a wholesome time making the movie, which is wonderful to hear. Because Wes loves to do that. I remember all the stories about Fantastic Mr. Fox, how they went out to like a cabin for three weeks and just rolled around in the leaves and rehearsed all their lines so they could pretend to be foxes and badgers and shit. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I love this. That's amazing. That's cool. I like that. (laughs) Susie's book, The Girl from Jupiter, is written by an Isaac Clarke, a reference to both Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And finally, the U.S. flag shown throughout the film is the original Betsy Ross flag with only 13 stars. Okay. It just shows up everywhere in the movie. That's just weird. Yeah. It's, a, it's part of the aesthetic choice. Who knows? And let's move on to then awards. There is only one award nomination for this movie, despite mm-hmm. the cast who we love. Okay. It was nominated only for Best Original Screenplay. Oh. And it lost that year. 
to Quentin Tarantino for Django Unchained. Fair. Yeah, fair. It's, I mean, that movie's awesome. I've had sports opinions about Quentin Tarantino. Sure. And him being the one to make that movie, but it is a great script. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is problematic. Like, there's just no two ways about he's it. He's not a good guy. <laughs> he's not a good guy. He's made some cool shit, though. It's very true. He's made some cool shit that deserves cinematic appreciation. He's made great movies. It might be time for him to go away. I think, I think we could live without him. I don't know that he has anything left to give us of interest. No. Though, to be fair, we got something really amazing out of Once Upon a Time. You were on a horsey? <laughs> I mean, funny Brad Pitt is the best thing that ever came out of Quentin Tarantino, I will say. And that gets us to our rating. Rating. Hmm. What is our rating system going to be this time? Ooh, there are some interesting. Oh, it's Wes Anderson, so you've always got interesting, specific choices. Sure, you can, make. you can make a lot of choices. We could do the Beatles. We could do. I feel like merit badges. Uh, uh there's too many specific merit badges for me. Maybe uh, the little kid record player, which no. is precious and adorable throughout the film. No, I'm gonna go with Beatles. Beetle okay. earrings. Little beetle earrings. Little beetle earrings. It's a little too precious, and it's got some plot problems. It just does. It has some story issues that really draw attention away from it. Mm-hmm. What was awesome about that was I got to appreciate just how strong Anderson's directing is. I'm going to give it a three and a half. I, like, I still really like this movie. I still really was charmed by it, but I was charmed by it in a different way and more in a way of like, wow, I really like Wes Anderson, and Wes Anderson does really cool shit. This movie's not his best but I still really like it. Hmm. I'm going to go with a two and a half. That's fair. The story problems, I think, really take away from the movie. Like sometimes story problems are just like, well, I just don't like it. Yeah. Or they make the movie too long. This one, I think it, they really take away from the story. So uh, I have to take it down for that. And I, some of those directing choices with, you know, like his young actors, I think he could have directed her better. So, yeah, I think it's a two and a half. Like, I love the concept and like the things that are really great are really great. But like, it's not one I'm going to watch again. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't revisit this. So it's a two and a half. I would, but I'm a sucker for him. So I'm just going to go watch True Beverly Hills. So I want to watch a scout movie. <laughs> Beverly Hills, what a thrill. Beverly Hills. You've never seen that movie. And that's a travesty. We need to fix that. Yeah. It's got Jenny Lewis. Jenny Lewis. Well, we're going to take a pivot from precious twee scout films to Scientology. Oh, yay. My favorite thing to dunk on. Although we're not going to outright call it Scientology because Paul Thomas Anderson, if anything, is very cagey when he wants to talk about things. It's true. But the film that means he will never work with Tom Cruise ever again. We're watching The Master, a film that I have been desperate to see since it came out and then never saw. It was just one of those ones that were like, we want to see it, we want to see it. And then we knew it was really long and we just couldn't get to it. We just couldn't get to it. And then it, I don't think it was nominated for anything that year. What year did it come out? 2012. We're sticking in 2012. Oh, I know why we didn't see that. <laughs> we just had a baby. Well, that's true. That is we, very true. We had a baby at the end of 2011. But we weren't seeing shit. We saw Django Unchained and we saw some of the big, big stuff, but we we weren't seeing this and we weren't seeing the master. It was one of those we had to try. Like, we have to go see something we know we're going to have a good time at. I'm excited. I've been excited about this one for a long time. We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it... this is. This is after his big dramatic turn. Sure. Saw Boogie Nights and Magnolia and a little bit more of a like, we're going to be a little quirky. Even with some of the drama. Well, and then we did. There, there will be, be blood. blood. And we went in a much different direction. Like, oh, okay oh, then. Okay. We're sticking with this. All right. No, no, no shade. Prepare your e-meters, everyone. Oh, oh yes. And just be prepared for Diana to dunk on Scientology a lot. Because it's my favorite pastime on this podcast. We gotta. We got I can't not. Forever. It's my sport. So until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks 
for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.